Welcome to Dispatch 7. Today I'm going to be talking with my colleague at Portland State University, Dr. Grace Dillon. Grace is Anishinaabe and teaches in the Indigenous Nation Studies program. Grace has edited two volumes of science fiction. I'm grateful to Grace, who wrote the preface to my own book, Dangerous Spirits, and I always enjoy her humor, her insight, and enthusiasm. Today we'll be talking about Indigenous futurism, a term that she coined. You're going to hear Grace mention many books. Please look for titles in the show notes. Grace, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in Indigenous futurisms? Well, I was very, very fortunate uh, in that Ursula K. Le Guin uh, was herself really interested in having Indigenous scholars in the field of SF or science fiction, as it's more often known, uh, and the fantastic and horror for speculative fiction. And uh, so she actually helped me get a tenure-track position in science fiction. So um, in 2002, Alondra Nelson had put together this beautiful, beautiful scholarship on Afrofuturism, and many of us go back to that uh, rather than the earlier uh, Mark Dreary comment about and conversation about Afrofuturism. And so I was just looking around and seeing that there were many forms of indigenous science fiction and futurisms that people weren't recognizing, such as Gerald Visner's Bearheart way back in 1978 is uh, it starts off as a story where the oil uh, deplete there's been an oil depletion in the United States and so yeah way back then and so they uh, basically are going into now tribal nations and taking their lumber because all the lumber elsewhere is gone uh, and so they're starting to encroach on tribal lands to get wood in order to have some kind of form of energy. Um, and so it's, it's a beautiful, controversial novel that is partially about that kind of landscape. And it is very, very much um, set in uh, a near future or a future for us. Uh, and I think has even more relevance in the year 2020 than it did in 1978. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, as I was thinking through what I would like to do, and at the time I was teased an awful lot in the science fiction field about doing indigenous futurisms. And I coined the term back in 2003 uh, as I was tenure track and really thinking things through. And the beauty to me of futurisms as opposed to plain SF is that um, futurisms gives a lot more of our own, uh, not only centering ourselves uh, as both authors and characters in the story or any other kind of medium, uh, but 
the other thing that I was discovering along the way is that uh, the old cybercultural debates of is mind more important than the body um, really fell short and that futurisms, whether it's Afrofuturism, African futurism, uh, coined by Nettie Okorafor, uh, Latinx futurisms, indigenous futurisms, Gulf futurisms, Asian futurisms, that one thing that we all had in common that actually really broke some huge barriers uh, in the field of science fiction itself is that we would entangle mind, body, and spirit. Uh, and that this was just a flow throughout our stories. And it didn't have to have terms like magical realism or um, have kind of odd terminology attached to it uh, because it's the way we think and feel and live. Um, and so that uh, was one of the features that I really, really wanted to bring in, and at the time, back in 2003, was very controversial. Uh, now, in 2020, it's not at all. <laughs> and it reflects more of the global, uh, global kind of literature that's coming out and is truer in spirit to that, I think. The one thing that I think of for futurisms is that you're never losing sight of past. That's a really, really important feature that's distinct sometimes from the extrapolative qualities of science fiction, where, you know, you intentionally might create, uh, in a Robert Heinleinian sense, a mathematical equation of, well, here's a past, here's a present, from that, we can extrapolate a certain kind of future. And um, indigenous futurisms is very, very different. Uh, we are conscious of our ancestral past, and it is viewed as very, very connected. Uh, so I think of our word kobadi, and uh, K-O-B-A-D-E, kobadi. And it's a very simple term, but it means a lot of things all at once. And essentially, it's like creating this looping uh, chain uh, that is combining ancestors, combining what is present with what is future, so that it becomes really, really infused throughout, as opposed to... Uh, you know, just jumping points to create a rational, uh, rationalized form of thinking of what our future might be. Why is an indigenous science fiction important? How did you, how do you think some indigenous communities view the field? Oh, uh, there has been so much excitement. Uh, and I'm just thinking of Helen Hegg-Brown, who uh, did her amazing film, The Cave, in her own indigenous language. 
she and I were just having conversations about this. And now it's quoted over and over again in many wonderful publications. Uh, and her response, because she was not used to science fiction of any kind, there was a Lars von Trier experiment where they selected the top six indigenous filmmakers uh, to get out of their comfort zone. She had usually done documentaries. They were very feminist in inclination. Uh, and so she contacted me and talked to me about what is this stuff, you know? <laughs> and when I was busy stumbling around and sorting through some of the possibilities, she said, um, oh, it's like taking the fiction out of science fiction. And I just loved that statement. And when I talked to many indigenous communities around the world, they immediately click into that. Like, and, and I always give her credit for that, uh, that epiphany. Um, and I think that it is really, really true. And so therefore, there is an interest in all kinds of fields. Uh, indigenous science, or sciences, I like to call them with an S because we have so many, um, really then can come to the forefront along with the intersection of all other kinds of global sciences. Uh, and you bypass the whole binary of Western versus non-Western sciences. You're really having a conversation globally around the world uh, with many, many communities that are already either sensing that or relying on ancestral knowledge that they are always updating <laughs> and combining and fusing with other forms of sciences. During the um, wildfires in Australia, and also oh, the year before during yes. the wildfires in British Columbia, there was a lot of talk about all yeah. the indigenous scientific knowledge that had been lost around um, maintaining the land through fires. You wouldn't have what took place, what, seven or eight months ago, I guess, in Australia. Yeah. Where we see these absolutely apocalyptic visions that are like something out of a science fiction novel. Um, so it's interesting. So it's a way of kind of valuing and capturing that kind of scientific knowledge. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I was actually in Australia during that time in Sydney. I had been invited out. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, for several weeks. What were you doing? I was to, I was a keynote speaker for Indigenous Futurisms. And uh, what was really amazing about the many, many conversations is that we were sharing uh Australian indigenous knowledge about sciences that were actually being put into place to help, um, not only to help preserve the species, but also to help in uh, the fire management. And in fact, uh, it's some really good novels to check into are uh, Claire G. Coleman, and it's called Terra Nullius. And I'll put a link for that book in the show notes. Okay, cool, cool. And by the way, this is queer indigenous uh, futurisms. Uh, and in Claire's case, 
she and her partner, in order to write her novel, traveled around all parts of Australia and into the bush for, I think, about two years in in an old caravan. Uh, And so what becomes really pivotal about that novel is, well, for instance, when I read it, this is before I went to Australia, the landscape moments along with the character became so pivotal, I was actually having dreams about those landscapes after I read the novel. I mean, it was that powerful. And, uh, and she's also written now the old lie, which continues. Now, part of why I can't go into too much detail about her novels is she will have a surprise twist. Um, so you'll enter this arena where you don't think it's set in the future or it's SF at all. And then it will shift around that. That's all I'll say. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, and, uh, and she, there's a lot of queer indigenous writers uh, and they've set up an independent press there where they can put through a lot of their uh, indigenous futurisms. So. <laughs> and what's the title of that novel again? Do you remember? Tara Nullius. Okay. I will be sure to put that in the show notes. This is great. So you talked about a few of the Australian authors. I'm, I'm curious, who do you think are some of the exciting authors in the field right now? Um, or who do you really recommend? If somebody mm. doesn't really know Indigenous science fiction and wants to pick out a few books to get started, what would you suggest? Well, um, Sherry Dimaline, who wrote The Marrow Thieves, and uh, she's uh, First Nations. Uh, let's see, she's Métis. And her uh, her novel is being turned into a TV series uh, to be broadcast in Canada. Uh, and then Rebecca Rowanhorse is absolutely amazing. And uh, she is Pueblo and African-American. Uh, her husband is Navajo. And she sets her, she has a trilogy with two books out now um, that is set with a future where there is a huge, huge, huge Navajo nation and then everything else outside is fairly desolate. Uh, and so, and that's already being opted for films. Wow. So, oh, and others like Daniel H. Wilson, who's Cherokee, uh, and he actually lives here in Portland with his family. Uh, he had gotten a, a, a PhD degree from Cornell in robotic engineering. And so his uh, books like uh, Robo uh, Apocalypse, Robogenesis, uh, those are just brilliant and amazing uh, with the centering, especially in the second one of, um, let's see, it's the Osage Nation and uh, Cherokee. 
And that also, um, that was optioned out by Steven Spielberg uh, for a film with Robo Apocalypse. uh, And Michael Bay is going to be the director of that. So that's a big film that when it comes out uh, will be a big deal. (laughs) Well, I was actually going to ask you, because, you know, we've talked before, and I know that you have this interest in um, in video games and films, so it's sort of interesting to hear that these these novels are going on and being developed into films. Yes, or TV series. Yes, um, Sherry Dimolines is uh, the Marrow Thieves is a TV series. Yep, and I think it will follow the ilk of like Lovecraft Country, that's on HBO. Uh, Nettie Akorafor, her novel, Who Fears Death. And that's actually a combination of not only Nigeria and uh, other countries in Africa, but there are specifically certain indigenous groups striving for self-determination and have self-determination in her future novel. Uh, and they are striving for self-determination now uh, 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 in our contemporary times. So there are specific in, uh, indigenous groups even in that. <laughs> Who fears death is what it's called. <laughs> and, that, and that's going to become a TV series on HBO. That's, they're working on it right now. Now, are there indigenous science fiction video games as well? I mean, we've, I know you have an interest in video games, but I don't know if that uh, is part of that kind of corpus. Absolutely. And here I have to give credit to my daughter, Elizabeth LaPonce, uh, because she actually is uh, not only an assistant professor at Michigan State University, but has been busy creating uh, Indigenous Futurism's video games uh, like Thunderbird Strike. Uh, The latest one that she's been working on is When Rivers Were Trails. And that's a a native uh, regeneration of the Oregon Trail game. So this is a game that's actually set up. Oh, that is just... <laughs> that's through the... Well, just for anybody in the audience who's listening, the Oregon Trail game has this sort of pop culture longevity. Like, it was... When was that? The 80s or 90s? And yet people still play that or, or talk about that game. So a reimagining of that game is so interesting. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was taught in so many um, elementary or middle schools. And so the Indian Trust Foundation came to Beth and said, could you, you know, redo this history and show it from our perspective? And so that's like Cynthia Coleman. Um, what she did is she traveled to all of the areas along that trail and then 
spent time, um, celebrated ceremonially, and had uh, many, many talks with permission then uh, from each tribal nation along the way to put in their stories. Um, and so there is a kind of futuristic quality to that because even though it's set in the past, it's so recycled and regenerated that it becomes a kind of futurism for many people. <laughs> well, I'm curious. I want to jump back for a second because you were speaking a little bit about um, your experience in Australia during the context of the wildfires and the people that you were meeting with. And you said that there was a, you know, kind of a, a movement right now within the area for queer science fiction or LGBTQ. And I'm curious, um, what kind of trends you see with that or who some of the key figures are, because it's not something I know anything about. Well, and a lot of them are um, key figures where the, the other thing about indigenous futurisms is that expands beyond just novels and short story collections. Um, so there's many art mediums, there's digital art mediums, there's video games, there's graphic novels, tons of them uh, coming out. Could you name one? I'm curious because I love graphic novels. So. Sure. Oh, well, again, I referenced Beth. She just edited along with Michael Shayashi, uh, Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection. This is volume three that's entirely on Indigenous futurisms. And then Marvel is actually putting out a, a new collection in November of essentially indigenous futurisms. And the important thing is it was not done through the usual channels. It was done through Lee Francis. He's a really important name with indigenous comics and graphic novels now. He's set up his own printing press. Uh, he's the one who created the first indigenous comic cons. Um, and that's been going on for, I don't know, five or six years now. Uh, it, oh, his uh, press is called Red Planet. And so what they did is they turned to him. And then he collected all of the artists, illustrators, writers uh, for that particular Marvel collection. And so what's interesting is that the names that appear in Moonshot and elsewhere are appearing in this Marvel collection. So it's the real deal. There will be no co-optation or appropriation of culture or anything else. These are all done with First Nations peoples, uh, uh, Native Americans in the States and just all over. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing that because it'll be interesting to see Indigenous futurisms mainstreamed in the way that the Black Panthers film uh, mainstreamed Afrofuturism. It's so interesting. I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but there's the Massachusetts Independent Comics Exhibition every year, which I love to go to. Oh. And I was there two years ago, and I was talking to a young woman who loved Lovecraft, but 
decided that it needed a remake. And so she, uh, I think her series is called Innsmouth. And uh, after one of the towns mentioned in Lovecraft stories, only now the protagonist is a uh, young Muslim woman. And she's using the genre genre to kind of remake because, of course, Lovecraft is fascinating. And he was also horribly racist, which is one of the first things everybody mentions about him. And so it's a very interesting way. Anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitic. And, oh, it goes on. And, yeah. and so it's a way yeah. to kind of take this this whole body of stories and 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 kind of rethink them and and kind of um, and so it, it, it's interesting with everything from the Oregon uh, the the updating of the Oregon Trail game I would say to see uh-huh. these kinds of existing traditions being rethought by the yeah. communities that were involved in those stories in some way. So yeah. Yeah. I, I find this 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 really interesting. And the reason I thought to invite you for this this interview now was, as we were talking a little bit before the recording started, I picked up the New York Times uh, a little while ago, and there was a title about indigenous science fiction. And I thought, Grace. So could you tell us a little bit about why indigenous science fiction is drawing more attention right now, maybe? Yes. Um, in... In having the good fortune to be invited globally around the world, I've been able to have a lot more conversations with people. And what really stands out is the elements of climate justice, uh, environmental justice, racial justice, economic justice. All of those things become integrated in Indigenous Futurism's novels. And there's a real fascination with that. And I think the other thing, too, is part of the fascination is, oh, we don't need to go in and help these people and their communities. They're already actively doing things. So, for example, uh, in my Garden River Nation, uh, we don't have a casino, but we have solar panels all throughout the nation. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so we have that as an energy resource rather than oil. And um, so those kinds of features appear in these stories, like the way we are living now or the way we are imagining us to live in, you know, 10 to 50 years down the road, a hundred. And, and I think that, uh, or so I've been told from many people, they not only find it really exciting, they find it very comforting because in confronting the Anthropocene, there's just sometimes a sense of real despair and are we just tipping over the edge and that's it. And so there's been a kind of wonderment in some ways that, oh, uh, indigenous communities around the world are actively uh, not just decolonizing the Anthropocene and art and other kinds of mediums, but using that art to express uh, what is going on and what we are doing now. I think that's so important because I was just having this conversation yesterday with a 
a colleague of mine, and we were talking about kind of the emotional energy that it it entails, kind of thinking about and organizing uh, uh, to address climate change, because there is this part of us, I think, that just starts to feel, you know, especially right now with the pandemic, that mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming. So I think that's a really interesting idea that this can be almost a kind of tool to kind of see all alternate paths, but also to think about in a way that is emotionally accessible. And Yeah, yeah. I was just going to mention a few novels. Oh, please. Maybe in connection with that. Uh, Wabashig Rice has written uh, Moon on the Crusted Snow. And what's really beautiful about that is um, it's a story of what happens when you are cut off uh, in terms of internet communication or any kind of communication. And uh, you are in a situation where as a community, you need to come together. And so what's really fascinating to me is that so many people in reading that, they can take away not just simply, oh, you're indigenous and these are the kinds of things you do, but kind of the community engagement that starts happening with all of its faults and flaws and, you know, we're humans, <laughs> becomes actually this really encouraging story for others. Um, Louise Erdrich's Future Home of the Living God uh, very much engages with uh, uh, invasive species and uh, at least Anishinaabe thinking, although I'm running across other articles in environmental science and uh, geography and cultural anthropology. And all of those areas, by the way, are just snatching up indigenous futurisms and uh, using them and and making them a part of their teaching and their scholarship, uh, et cetera. Uh, and, and that's a book where um, it's not just simply a species changing uh, and mutating. It's also the idea of humans mutating. <laughs> Almost as if we're also part of the natural world. Yes, yes, yes. And, and so are we devolving or are we evolving? And that poses a very, very interesting question in that novel. And Louise Erdrich is Anishinaabe. Um, there's also a beautiful novel by Harold Johnson. He's Cree. And he uh, became a, a part of the law world and was a judge and, you know, was all a part of that and then went back and his novels called Corvus. And it's this beautiful combination of really, really, really advanced technology. And then a person who is part native, who uh, through accidents, <laughs> uh, becomes involved in uh, a Cree community. And that is very much about uh, climate change and climate justice as well. And the way I now think of climate justice is the way I tend to think about environmental justice. And that is that 
we can't always count on other agencies to swoop in and help us, um, that the justice is going to rise from within. We're the ones that are going to supply that and then create alliances uh, and negotiations and compromises with other agencies, but that it's always, we're the centered ones, not the decentered ones in that situation. These um, sound like such perfect books for, for people who are kind of following these issues right now. And, yeah. Um, I know, Grace, that you've taught a class on Indigenous futurisms, and I'm curious about what do you think draws students to that class? What are they looking for? And what what you've kind of learned from watching their experience of the class? Well, it's it's been really fascinating. Uh, there are many First Nations and Indigenous students that are drawn to it. Also, some who are searching for their own Native identity and are nervous about that, but are eager to find out. Uh, and then many allies, uh, many what are now referred to as BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and I would add in Latinx uh, and Latinx Indigenous students. Uh, so when they come into this class, uh, they're eager. There, there, there tends to be a real eagerness, and they are often very, very fascinated by um, uh not just the autonomy of text, but, oh, one thing they really, really love are the indigenous sciences that are often infused throughout the novels or the short stories. Uh, also, the language, because often we'll give up and then talk in our own language. Uh, for instance, I was thinking of the word jibi. Uh, uh, in, in my Anishinaabemowin language. And um, jibi is simply river, but jibigi is to write. Uh, and so even in our language, uh, it, it teaches actually through the language itself and kind of exploring it and what that means in a story, it literally is bringing life through water, right? So even in your writing, jibigi, uh, you're conscious of water, right? And you're bringing life through water uh, and through those kind of lines of memory of water. Uh, and so it also, I think, becomes an interesting decolonization technique and it invites uh our community, because I think of them as a community rather than students and a professor. Oh, and we have many elders joining as well. And so there's a lot of wisdom in the conversations that come up. And through just being able to bring up our own languages, as is done through the novels and short stories and films and uh, so many other mediums. Oh, and there's a, I've got to get you the Sequoia Nine, I think it is, comic book, where it's all done in the language 
And then there's a little code for you so that you can figure out what it's saying in English. And then it just starts teaching you throughout uh, so that by the end of it, if you're really paying attention, you have learned a lot of that language. Um, because our language is our, what I call skin thinking, <laughs> because it's, it provides a different way of thinking through things that can be sometimes startling, but then at the same time for a lot in the community just makes a lot of sense, you know, where, uh, you're getting literally into alternative ways of thinking in, in a joyful and pleasant kind of way. That reminds me of something that um, I saw a few years ago. One of my students, in, uh, it was my Amazon Rainforest class, volunteered to um, work with a group of students who want to learn Chinook Wawa. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Oh, themselves. yes, yes. And it was it was interesting in that th there was no sort of formal teacher. They were teaching each other, which is a very different ah. approach and way to go about learning a language. You know, it was very communal yeah. from the grounds up, ground up, and yeah. uh, was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but I do think that thinking about language is fascinating. I'm very intrigued by the this this uh, uh, is is it a graphic novel yeah. that you? Yeah, the Sequoia Nine. Yeah, I'll be sure to. Yeah, I'll. And and it appears in so many stories and uh, throughout. In fact, it encouraged me to, uh, because now there's forms of scholacticism that combine uh, your art forms. Uh, and especially, I would say, in uh, Black studies, but it spilled over with indigeneity uh, and indigenous nation studies as well. Uh, so, example, Alexis uh, Pauline Gums, who I just love, and I bring her what is basically theory into my grad course on theory. But what it really is, is a futuristic visionary <laughs> combining of art and poetry with theory. And students just absolutely love that and it's yet another decolonizing form right where um, you don't just analyze others you actually joyfully share your own art and then build off or integrate theory with that um, so you know afrofuturisms indigenous futurisms etc has actually even impacted MA degrees, PhD degrees, postdoc uh, work um, in that sense as well. And also going back to science, um, a really important feature I think that I've been starting to talk more and more about is that um, indigenous thinking really, really opens up the concept of STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, it really opens up STEM to STEAM uh, because art, the A in STEAM, is, has always been a part of our science. So the reason why I was really attracted to science fiction 
is that I grew up with our ancestral stories, our star people stories, all of the stories um, that were ceremonial. And it always, uh, when we would describe or when uh, mama or daddy would try to talk to me about ideas that were scientific, they always told it in story form. Uh, for Daddy, it was in Anishinaabemowin, and then he would explain some of it. But that's an essential aspect where um, learning science is learning through what some people would call science fiction and what we call storytelling, uh, and Dasawan. Uh, and so that's the very way that we um, we both experience it out in the open and we're being told the story simultaneously that matches that moment. Um, And so with my freshman in race and social justice, I have a science quarter uh, with them. And the way I end it is with indigenous sciences. And I simply go in and tell some scientific stories in Anishinaabemowin uh, where you have animal people, you know, <laughs> that are interacting with each other. And then you learn um, that particular scientific concept. Uh, and, oh, my gosh, uh, my freshmen, and many of them are BIPOC, have jumped up in excitement saying, oh, my gosh, if I had learned science in this way, I would really love science. So there's something about the strength of that storytelling um, as you're doing science uh, that is integral uh, to our thinking. We don't separate it out, right? And so um, anyway, they, they really, really love that. Grace, I just, I think this is such an interesting topic. <laughs> Uh, Chay McGuetch, thank you very much. I do too. <laughs> and I'm honored that you would want to uh, learn about this or share this with others. Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode.